You're listening to Passion Pod number five with One Home Many Hopes. So Thomas, founder of One Home Many Hopes, give us the lowdown. What's it all about? The, sh- the short story of us is that we rescue, house and educate orphaned and abandoned girls in Kenya and take them to and through university. So as in 20 years, they'll be doing this work and, and we don't need to. The theory being that nobody cares more about justice than the victims of injustice. And so if we can provide children who've experienced the worst and give them an education in their heads and the confidence in their bellies and most importantly, the network at their fingertips to match that desire for justice that's in their hearts in 20 years time, they can do work that, that we can never do. So give us a bit of your backstory. So uh, I grew up in Northern Ireland in a small town about 45 miles south of Belfast. Studied history and politics, graduated from Queen's University and then left Northern Ireland for about 10 years just to be me. And travelled around North America for the most part, doing all manner of odds and ends, from moving Gillian Anderson's furniture to carrying Brian Adams' musical equipment to... I wish everyone could have such exciting temporary jobs. It's like, yeah, I worked, you know, weekends in Tesco's. Mm-hmm. Like, not quite. Maybe the trick is to travel. So, How, what is that? Just word of mouth jobs? Yeah, you just meet one person, you meet another. Whenever you find yourself standing alone in a bus stop and for the third successive weekend, you start talking to people. <laughs> uh, and then, having grown up in Northern Ireland and... Uh, as you may be aware, Northern Ireland's had one or two political problems for the last six centuries or so, working for, for a group of politicians who realised a number of things. But one thing was that there's a big difference between uh, peace on the street and peace when politicians sign a piece of paper. And so they created a programme to bring young, long-term, unemployed Northern Irish people to America for up to two years of paid employment from both sides of the divide. The idea being you give people the chance to realise that we're not that different after all. And second of all, folks who've never really saw the value of work or education get employed, start to think, oh, it's nice to have money in my pocket. Then we'll return home and be different. Uh, people and contributors than they were before they left. Still probably carrying the same political belief they did, but with a bit more perspective and context. So I went to Boston to help implement that program. Uh, after a number of years doing that, I went on to write for write for some Irish and American newspapers in Boston and New York and Philadelphia as, a, as an opinion columnist. Out of one of those newspaper columns came the birth of the non-profit organisation of the charity that now is my full-time occupation, uh, One Home Many Hopes. Your we, passion pod. My passion pod. Amazing. So um, give us a bit of a timeline for it all. So we started One Home Many Hopes by accident. I went to Kenya on holiday to be selfish and self-indulgent and do a safari and take photographs of animals that my father couldn't raise in Northern Ireland. But a couple of things happened on that trip. If you're on a train from Nairobi to Mombasa, about 20 minutes outside the city of Mombasa, there's everyone who's sitting near a window, closes the window at the same time. And the reason they do that is there's just this unholy smell that assaults your your nasal cavities. Like I grew up on a farm in Northern Ireland, so agriculture smells pretty rich. You're well prepared. You would think so. Somewhat immunised, but not entirely. This smell was like nothing I'd ever, ever encountered. And you look out the window to see what it was, and there were this mound of rubbish. I said to the fellow beside me, hey, look, that's that's moving. And when you looked at it, there were dozens of 8-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds just scavenging over this loathsome pile of filth that I couldn't even abide the smell of trying to find something to eat. And the moment passed, and I went back to my holiday, as we do. Until I met a guy, one of the most inspirational characters I've ever met in my life, Anthony Malongo. He was a journalist in Kenya. He had given up his job because he'd met one girl. Her name was Gift. He is a Kenyan 
in his late 20s, previously to having met her, had thought of street children as just being a, a pest. But he met Gift and she was six years old and she was carrying her infant brother on her back, unaware that her brother was dead already. And so he had to, he and his friends had to tell her that. And he thought, what do I do? I can't just give her some change and send her on her way. So he took her into his house and more or less adopted Gift as his daughter, put her in school. And so at that moment, the issues that he grew up in the midst of in Kenya, that became personal right then. And uh, as we sat, he, we just began to realize that our ideas on how, on how development of communities in the long term could be wisely and most impactfully done. Do you think that goes back to a lot of what you were talking about with your job in Ireland initially? It is. It's long term. It's changing uh, above all else, tend to your heart. Everything you do flows from there. If we can raise up a network of children who've experienced the worst to do something about it in 20 years, they will do things because they know the pain of a corrupt, broken system. And uh, one home many hopes takes a longer view. It's a totally different tack, really, if you think of it like that, which is what I find really exciting about it. I think that's inspiring for people. That was exactly my thought. In Kenya, when I met Anthony at the start and we began to, to just have these conversations, my mind was in part at the dinner table or lunch table with him, but it was also in part back with my friends at home. None of us were people who would naturally give money to orphan projects or children's projects. And I thought to myself, if I bring this long-term vision back to my friends, my cynical friends, they'd rally around that. They're smart, long-term people who would, rather than donate to a charity, would invest in a vision. The second thing was how we handle our money. I love asking people for money. I love asking people for money for good things because it feels good to give. But what I don't enjoy is asking people for money for the same thing in five years as I'm asking them for today. So everything we build or do, we build a profit generating arm into it. Our girls home on the side has a uh, tilapia fish farm. We sell tilapia freshwater fish on the coast of Kenya. The school that we're building will be a school that in four to five years of opening will be attracting fee paying students because it's a good school and those fee paying students will be subsidizing the costs of those who were really building it for the very poor. The two things that we wanted to rise above the noise with is long-term not short-term and is 100% funding model that is working towards sustaining itself if people partner with us now. In my ignorance that's really unusual isn't it? Very unusual in the UK there's a couple of groups in the US that are, are doing that also but it's it's not common because it's difficult but we get around that by going to people and saying we need you to fund our operations we want to fund our operations well but we also want to introduce new people to us by saying 100% of what you give goes to mission because you fund the operational stuff that other people don't want to. But how does that work for you personally, financially? After we started the organisation back after the newspaper article, it was just a bunch of volunteers. I still had my day job. I didn't give up immediately. But uh, on the side, I started to build this. And after two years of building it, we thought, now it's time to pack everything in and, and really have a go at it. I was cautious. Had I to do it again, I would probably have employed myself before I did. We'd have grown much more quickly. It's a huge step though, that, isn't it? Yeah. As soon as I left my job and set about trying to raise my own salary, first of all, in order to honour our 100% funding model, I had to fund myself as our biggest expense outside of donations raised by our volunteers. The most miserable two months of my life were the summer that I was trying to raise my own support. It's one thing for me to raise money for our work. It's another thing to raise money for my own, for my own living expenses. So do you reckon from your experience then that making a living holds people back from quitting their jobs to pursue their passion? Well, it's difficult. It's difficult not to sound sanctimonious or whenever we speak about this because 
the reality is that many of us have we have rent to pay and grub to buy and student debt to pay or whatever it is and this is where it gets difficult not to be sanctimonious but very few of us no matter how hard the economy is presently are at risk of being on the street very few of us are at risk of being hungry many of us are at risk of compromising a level of comfort that we think we want or a level of comfort that we're used to but we have time uh for the most part, we can organize our priorities to spend our time how we want to. We're not often working 60 hours a week out of necessity, working it because we're pursuing a perceived reward. And um, my sweet, what's coming up for One Home Many Hopes? So this year, we've really started an effort in, in the UK. We were more or less entirely US-based until 2011, but we set up what we call volunteer chapters in, in Belfast and Bristol and London. What we're looking for presently, I suppose, is a good way to answer the question, is people to, to join those those chapters, those groups. So building the London, Bristol and Belfast base. It's the awareness as well, I guess that's so much of it, getting people talking about it. We don't have the the brand recognition of a of a world vision or a Christian aid or an Oxfam. So it's finding people who will get 20 people in their house and have one of our volunteers tell her, tell the story and see who'll be interested. If someone isn't going to be the person who quits their job and sells their possessions and lives barefoot in a tent, then... Uh, That's over to you, my sweet. You can do that for gonna, <laughs> <laughs> If someone's going to be one of, our, one of our volunteers, it needs to be fun. There's no need to, to guilt people into charity whenever we can offer them joy. One of the reasons that we invented ourselves or didn't just start trying to latch on to something else was that we don't want to show images of starving children and say, imagine what will happen if you don't give. We want to say, think of what can happen if we do. There's nothing that, there's nothing that we can't do, frankly, if we, if we possess the desire, if we possess the passion. Running this, what's your biggest challenge? We do have moments where I see friends progressing up a, up a career ladder or being on a path or having an obvious direction and journey that there's comfort in. And sometimes I sit at home at my table by my computer on my own thinking what on earth there's there's where is this going to go to it's tough i never thought i'd say this but it's sometimes hard not to have a boss or a structure to fit into but just have a blank page that you fill yourself it's very liberating and it gives a lot of ground for for innovation and initiative but there's a lack of security and uh i never thought i'd miss structure or rigidity or having to be somewhere at some time but when it's not there and you have to, to discipline yourself that's hard for me. Are there any tips that you have about how you've managed to use your time efficiently with setting this all up? Or is mm. it sort of an ongoing thing? I mean, It's very much an ongoing thing. I haven't found the answer. I struggle with it. I struggled a lot with it when I was just working from home. Finding an office to go to, I don't have an office of my own, but finding a workspace to go to where there are other people working around me made a big difference knowing that I'm going to be there by 9 o'clock or by 9.30 rather than getting out of bed and making toast and then walking to the kitchen table and working in my pyjamas. But it's discipline biggest weapon is probably remembering here are the reasons why i'm doing this if i don't do it nobody else will it's a desire i want this to succeed so much that i'll do what it takes yeah feels good to be doing something you believe in and see it grow and even whenever if you believe in something even whenever it's not going well you still if a few days or even a few weeks aren't going well you still know that in the context of the overall vision and project that that's all right because it's, it's good in the end. And you've got to have those moments, haven't you? And that's what your friends are for, really. You know, that's what I want passion pods to be, is a support in time. Support for people that when they're having that week of like, oh, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Listen to someone who you can relate to and get your juices going again. Well, you need that. Whenever you're doing what you're doing now, or me and the many others that are entrepreneurs in various sectors out there, they're not doing what most people are doing. So you often have to rely on yourself. And if you do that, 
it's isolating unless you have people who are also there, have been through it, and can encourage you through the days that are a bit more challenging. I mean, it's obvious where your inspiration for the whole project came from with your your journey. As it's grown, do you turn to any specific reading or, I don't know, music or... There's one book I read last summer by an American guy called Donald Miller. It's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And it starts out, imagine if you watched a film about a guy who wanted to buy a Volvo and he worked all his life to get it. So you wouldn't cry at the end when he drives it out of the showroom and test the wipers for the first time. You wouldn't invite all your friends around to, to tell them about this beautiful story you just seen or you wouldn't go home and put on some music and think about what you just watched. The truth is, you probably forget that film in a week. Nobody remembers a film about a bloke who wants a Volvo. Yet, many of us actually spend years living these stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. But the truth is, if the way we spend our days wouldn't make a film meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. That guy wrote that book on the back of the book that made his name as an author, a book called Blue Like Jazz, which was his autobiography, collection of essays that made up his autobiography, and two blokes read that book and thought, huh, we want to make a film about this man's life. The process of going through his life and having it torn apart by a pair of editors and realising the amount of boring stuff that he did and the, the insignificance of most of his days or weeks made him write this book. It's an amazing idea, that. Isn't it? There was an article. Did you see the article? There was an article in The Guardian about this nurse, this lady who'd been a nurse for years. Yes, the five wishes or yeah. the ten wishes of the dying. I know. It's a remarkable thing. Nobody there wished they'd worked more I wish they'd, uh, wish they'd had more sex or uh, <laughs> wish they'd made more. They, they wish that their lives had been more impactful, more true to themselves. Do you, if you could give one piece of advice to someone that was thinking about doing something similar? Or- yeah, the advice is probably think carefully first and make sure that it's not just heart because I had the heart and the head moments uh, in, in Kenya. One probably wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done this but for both. But ultimately, do it. Absolutely do it. We as people in our 20s and 30s, we have more money than we think we do and we have more time than we'd ever have in our life and we don't know it. We think we're busy, but we're not. We go about our jobs and trying to get promotions or keep jobs or get jobs or pursue higher education, you name it. But all of us at some level want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, bigger than ourselves, and bigger than our family. And I was as big a cynic as you could be about development or about charity or about international aid. I used to think to myself, what's the point? Haven't we been building orphanages and schools and sending millions of pounds and dollars to to Africa or to Kenya, in my case, for years, and we're still talking about the same things? My friends and I used to sit around a lot talking about justice, saying the rich should do something. Or imagine if we didn't spend four pounds, five pence on this beer, but pooled the money and did something with it, what we could do, and then order another one. But in our somewhere within us, we want it to be part of what we just described, part of something bigger. But I think the big difference as well is that when you actually, it's that thing of swapping from talking about it to doing it, mm. acting on it, I think is the hard part often, isn't it? It's, it is. One of the wisest pieces of advice I ever got from anybody was from a, uh, a gentleman called David Bliss. He says, Thomas, you'll find something in life that people will be much more likely to follow you when they see you do something and don't just hear you talk about it. People will follow. We have seen that in most areas of, of life and business, if one person there's a lot of people hanging on the periphery waiting to follow some leader who will do something. And whenever someone steps out and bites off, others will come. Uh, they just need you to lead them.
you've been listening to Passion Pod number five with One Home Many Hopes. <laughs> <laughs>